Hi, Tim. Hi, Mary Lee. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Andrew. So my dad and I were at Lowe's years ago and saw an interesting scene that has remained burned into my memory. We were picking up some random things for my apartment, and there was a couple probably in their late 20s, early 30s in line in front of us, and they had a five- or six-year-old daughter with them. And she decided while we were waiting in line that she wanted to go to the display there next to the register and just start pulling things off. Gum, candy, whatever. (laughs) She's just pulling things off. And her mom started loudly admonishing her. Delilah, Delilah, you stop that right now. Delilah, 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 you stop that. (laughs) And I looked at my dad and he looked at me and sort of under his breath, he said, you know, there are some names that I might not have picked for my daughter. (laughs) And we're just wondering how long this is going to continue. And the mom keeps yelling at the girl and the girl is completely ignoring her, not looking at her, not changing her behavior in any way. She's just unaffected. And then the mom looks at the dad. She says, do something. And his response is, my hands are full. And I looked, and he had a 20-ounce soda in each hand, a a Pepsi (laughs) and a Mountain Dew. He he wasn't carrying 60 pounds of bags of dry concrete mix. He he just had a soda in each hand. And to him, it was obvious that he couldn't intervene. He couldn't do anything about this. His hands were full. My hands are full. And... This continued for several more minutes with the girl just pulling things off and pulling things off. And you could tell the staff in the store were starting to notice because this family's going to leave and then they're going to have to clean all this up. And the mom and dad didn't do anything effectual until finally they checked out. The guy bought his sodas, the lady bought whatever she had in her hands, and then they just grabbed the daughter and dragged her out and left the whole mess behind them in the aisle. And we got up to the register and the clerk was like, I'm really sorry about that. And my dad and I were both just embarrassed for everybody who had to just stand around and watch that because it's embarrassing to watch. So that was my Delilah story, not using that name. And our subject. So the topic is the Christian virtue of saying no. And in that case, it doesn't even need to be Christian. The virtue of saying no. The parental virtue. Just the general virtue in the world of saying no. Well, let me read maybe the classic case of saying no that Christians like to argue about in Scripture. And it's in Acts 15, and it says, verse 36, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Now, you have to remember that Barnabas was the one that was Paul's sponsor. So when Paul received the vision on the road to Damascus, It was Barnabas that God sent him to. Barnabas is known also as the son of encouragement. And so you've got the Apostle Paul, but you have this man who was an advocate for the Apostle Paul when everybody hated him because he had been imprisoning and killing Christians. Um, But here they arrive... And I guess you could say that they both play their parts, Barnabas being the son of encouragement, the apostle Paul never failing to say no. And it says, but Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. And then again, verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. 
Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And so Barnabas says yes, he's an advocate. He's an advocate of a man that's obviously weak because he abandoned the work, that's what it says, Uh, He had deserted them. And the Apostle Paul says, no, there have to be consequences. And in verse 39, and there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. I bring that up because it is often the case that Christians disagree over the issue of saying yes or no or maybe. Today I got a text from a man that, that I know who was talking to me about the fact that his, uh, the grandparents are visiting and the grandparents are saying no to the discipline of the father and mother of their children. <laughs> very, very common situation with grandparents when they visit you that you know, they're, they say no to discipline. Right, And so saying no is a point of contention. And especially today, when we live in in such a decadent society that is refusing to say no to anything other than anybody that's accused of hurting victims. I mean, that's about it. That's about all that's left. Um, No seems mean. No seems faithless no seems to not be loving which always expects the best no seems to deny the power of god no seems to be moralistic cheap unkind lacking compassion and yet i'll never forget don blesh saying when i first entered the ministry that it's imperative that the church say God's no as well as his yes. And we wrote a doctrinal statement, a confession, in DuPage County one time, and at the beginning of it, there were a bunch of leaders of reform movements and denominations there. There were about 20 of us. And Dr. Blesch was there, and he said, now listen, he said, the strength of a confession like this is what you say no to. And so every point that was made We affirm, we deny. We affirm, we deny. And I've noticed the rest of my life that it really is true that it's the denial that has teeth. And without the denial, the affirmation lacks it. So that's our subject tonight. It's Andrew's subject. I'm just thinking a little bit about it. No, Tim, it's our subject. <laughs> well, and you're gonna, the one that came up with it. I'm going to push back a little bit at the beginning oh. when I said the Christian virtue of saying no. You said, well, it's not just a Christian virtue. And I agree to a yeah. point, but all the virtues in Christ are Christian. their full self. Like every virtue that's a virtue outside of Christ loses something essential. Courage is courage, and it's admirable, but courage apart from Christ is always missing something. The no that isn't grounded in Christ is missing something. And while I would certainly say that, yes, it can still be a virtue, I'm less interested in in the discussion of how no benefits the world 
and more about how no rooted in Christ is part of our mission. Yeah. What I'm worried about is if you say the Christian virtue of saying no, um, I'm pushing back deliberately on the Christian virtue of being nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want us to have faith for the no being the gospel with pagans. Okay. That's that's what I'm talking about. I don't want us to just think that we have this sort of Gnostic, uh, secret, handshake kind of understanding that no is good for Christians. Certainly. That's all I'm... Yeah, I'm not. About. I'm not trying to say that no is good and useful for Christians, but not applicable to the world. Yeah, but yeah, I, that's all I also true. don't like the William F. Buckley's. You know, the man standing athwart the the railroad track, screaming at history, "Stop!" Which is, I don't have a lot of truck with William F. Buckley. But <laughs> that's a more general thing. I can't stand the guy because of his slandering of uh, of Joe Sobrin as mm-hmm. being anti-Semitic and Pat Buchanan. But there is something to what he said in that. It is known that a chief rhetorical device of the pagans that we live among is to say that we are prehistoric, that we're dinosaurs, that we want to turn the clock back. And I think that's that's at the center of what Buckley is trying to say, is that there's an awful lot of things that we've left behind that should be restored. And an awful lot of progress ahead that's going to be a hell when we get there. <laughs> yeah. Let's not go. Yeah, yeah. But the thing that I really I remember really distinctly was the first time I saw a video of Buckley debating Gore Vidal. Mm-hmm. And I agree almost entirely with the position that Buckley's espousing, mm-hmm. and I disagree almost entirely with Gore Vidal. And I thought Buckley did a horrendous job of arguing. He was condescending, arrogant, interrupted. Just everything about it, I, I agreed with his ideas, and I couldn't stand watching him. But Mary Lee, what do you think about Gore Vidal? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go Google him. No idea what he stands for. So if we're not trying to just talk about... It's very no, hard for rich men not to be condescending. Okay, that makes sense. And that was a defining characteristic of Buckley. You know, he was a certain breed of Eastern seaboard superciliousness. And it was sad. But, but what I think about Buckley is, even though he was Roman Catholic, I think it's similar to Hillsdale. When you try to be good without God, when your reference point isn't scripture and God, but rather is morality, is conservatism, virtue, virtue, uh, you know, um, Flannery O'Connor got it right. You take Christ out of mercy and you end up with the Holocaust. That's what she said. And we always have to remember that virtue is Christian. Virtue is godly. You know, God's law is God's character. And when you try to take God out of reform movements or political improvement, uh, 
So is your objection to the Christian virtue of saying no simply that it's redundant? No, 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 no. I'm not objecting to it. I just remember back in the late 90s when David Jones, who was a professor of ethics and theology at Covenant Theological Seminary when I was in the PCA, and he came out in an interview in Christianity Today saying that all the laws in the United States against sodomy should be repealed. And it just, it was horrendous. And I remember thinking, he has no idea the educational value of the law in saying no to things. And it's not, in that context, it's not Christian at all. It's secular. And I just want us as Christians to realize that for a society to say no to things is unbelievably good when there are things that God says are an abomination. There are a lot of things. I just bring up sodomy because that's what David Jones. And, you know, he got his way. In time, all the sodomy laws were repealed, and then the Supreme Court did it. And that's the only thing I'm thinking about when we say the Christian virtue of saying no. Uh, but I don't want to keep talking about that. Let's get into saying no. <laughs> okay, so Mary Lee, we were talking, Tim and I were talking earlier at the previous recording session about the particular ways that Christian parents have to say no. And that can involve saying no to family commitments, saying no to activities for your kids, saying no to certain interests or others, uh, saying no to your spouse over certain things that because we have limited resources as a family, what are we going to do? going to say yes to some things and no to many more things than we say yes to. Yes, but it starts way before the commitments okay. that we have as a family or what we're going to let our kids do, <clears throat> you know, as they're growing up, because it starts with saying no to your babies, saying no to your toddlers, you know, so if you haven't exercised those muscle, muscles as parents, um, as you're just training Babies from the very beginning, you know, when the baby's mm-hmm. grabbing at your eyeglasses or at the mm-hmm. pen in your pocket, and you say no and, you know, to- hold his hand tight or move his hand away, you know, put his hand down and say no again. That's where it starts, you know, so that the kids can learn to respect and obey you as parents, as their authority. Don't you think, though, that most parents, especially first time parents, feel guilty? Oh, absolutely. Why do they feel guilty? I don't know. Well, think about it. (laughs) So um, what I am thinking about is that there is a huge movement in our culture to never say no to children. Yeah. And uh, so you're supposed to, you know, give them choices and distract them, but never just say no. And... um, it is a very time-consuming and unfortunate you why, know, direction. Because why is it attractive? Why do people buy into it and stay into it? I don't know. It's so stupid. Seriously. <laughs> it's just phenomenal. If you watch the parents who are, who are doing that, um, how ridiculous it becomes. What they, the lengths that they will go to to not just say, no, you're not going to do that. You know, I remember the night that Joseph, night after night, he would cry when we put him to bed. How old was he? Less than a year. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking eight to ten months. He was yeah. old enough to stand up, yep. you know, hold on to the edge of the crib and yep. scream. Yeah. 
And we lived in a little apartment, married student housing at Gordon Conwell, and it drove me crazy. I don't know if it drove you crazy. I think it drove up both of us crazy. He just screamed and screamed. He was angry he was in bed. And, you know, you'd go through the checklist, you know, he wasn't hungry, he wasn't wet, he wasn't sick, he wasn't... He was just ornery. He was angry. And I remember one night, it was driving us crazy. Well, plus, you're in an apartment and you're really wondering how many other people are listening to your kids scream. And I don't know whether Mud, my mother, had just called us or whether I called her. I think you called her. Yeah. I said, Mud, what on earth are we supposed to do? And she said, well, is he wet? Is he hungry? You know, she went through the checklist. We said, no, 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 no. And then she said, well, then go in, put him down on the mattress and hold him down until he goes to sleep. And I remember so distinctly her saying that, which everybody listening should understand. That's a cosmic no. I said, really, Mud? She said, yeah. And she said it so matter-of-factly that I said, you sure? Yeah, yeah. So I went in, and I felt guilty. You know, I, I, I thought, this can't be right. And so I went in and held him down. I said, no, Joseph. Night-night, Joseph. No, Joseph. Night-night, Joseph. No. And for 15 minutes, he was trying to arch out from under my hands and he was angry and then he'd get tired and then he got angry again 15 minutes i'm sure it was that long and finally i kept saying no night night no night night and finally he fell asleep very very gently i took my hands off him and i backed up outside of the room and as i was shutting the door his head popped up he started screaming bloody murder he stood up at the edge of 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 his crib grabbed it and just screamed so then i went back over put him back on the bed no abuse but holding him no joseph night night and i think it was only five minutes that time and he went back to sleep And he slept. And from that point on, if we ever put him to bed, ever, ever, the minute we put him down, he flopped his head down onto the mattress and did not make a sound. And if he ever made a sound, all I had to do was go to the door and say, night, night, Joseph. And his head would flop down and he would be silent. (laughs) And so that's a story that's very important for people that... It wasn't good for him to scream bloody murder for half an hour or an hour, you know? Yeah, wasn't And good it wasn't anything. good for us. It wasn't good for our neighbors. And we actually knew it wasn't good for him, and he didn't know that. He thought it was good for him. And so I'm so thankful I had a mother who told us what to do. Mm-hmm. Well, and I clearly remember the times that I did um, not appreciate your input and telling the kids no, and that was when they would be fussing, you know, right before dinner and whining, and you were just, you know, you'd come in the kitchen and say, no, you know, just come away, come out of the kitchen, be quiet, you're not going to fuss, anyway, whatever. 
And I was like, well, you know, they're hungry. it's really well. They were hungry, and it was my fault because they, you know, I had to run errands and took them with, and they missed their nap, or you know, there was always a reason mm-hmm. from something in the day that you know made them fussy. And you said, I don't care. I don't care if they're tired. I don't care if they're hungry. They're not going to fuss. We're not going to have this. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was good training, but it was hard. I yeah, I think I many times. Well, let's talk about another thing there, which was that I would come home from working, doing church work. And when I got home, I wanted to process my day with you. And I wanted to talk to you. And that was also a point of conflict is that the children again were hungry, hadn't had their naps. And I would say, you know, put it on, keep warm, come into the living room, sit down. I want to talk to you. You never wanted that. Never. But I knew that if I didn't talk to you when I got home, I wouldn't talk to you later. And I wanted your companionship at that time. I wanted to be able for us to talk. And I can remember many times you being irritated, not angry, but irritated at me sending the children out of the living room. No, mommy and I are talking. When we're done, we will eat. Until then, leave us alone. And I think one of the reasons people are guilty about that kind of stuff is that they think that it's actually good if they're unhappy and their husband is unhappy so that the children can be happy. They don't realize that if they and their husband are happy in their relationship and if they're taking care of each other, the children actually are happiest that way. Mm-hmm. And that requires, no, that requires defensive actions of the marriage against the children. Mm-hmm. The children, the most important thing for children is that they see their parents loving each other, fighting, teasing. That's the black soil children need. And it requires the children to be relegated to secondary importance, tertiary. Yeah. You don't want to say anything about that. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I totally agree. Sorry, I disagreed with you so often when we were doing it. Well, no, no, no. Everybody would say you're just a selfish pig, and I I understand (laughs) that. But I don't have any defense for it other than it worked. And we love each other. And I wish other couples would do it. I often think that the people that think that selfishness on the part of the parents are people who don't have a good marriage and really would prefer to have children be an interruption so that they don't have to be intimate emotionally or in conversation with their spouse. That's what I think. Well, and it's kind of like the squeaky wheel. The kids are a squeaky wheel because they're making noise. And they will always be a squeaky wheel. Right, and the marriage isn't squeaking but it might be slowly dying. Apart. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So you have to make decisions, what your priorities are, and say you no know to other things, which is what we're talking about here today. I'm deeply sympathetic to the wife who's unhappy that the husband comes home as she's in the process of getting dinner ready, puts it on pause, redirects the activity. I, I don't deal well when somebody interrupts me when I'm working, mm-hmm. when I'm working on a deadline, when I'm working on a deadline with people there in the building waiting on my deadline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you need to talk, you need to talk. There is no, you cannot postpone 
certain things indefinitely. You know, I don't know if I brought this up before, but you know Rita Cuffey. So she was just this godly woman. She was a part of our family. She and her husband, Jimmy, they were both met getting their doctorates at Harvard in astronomy. She went to Radcliffe. Very, very wise, godly woman. And she was in her 80s when we got to know her. And I remember her telling me that when they first moved to Indiana University, that she was invited by the faculty wives to come to a coffee clutch. And so the faculty wives would get together after lunch and drink coffee and talk. And she said she went one day. And when she got home, her children were already home and had been there for half an hour or an hour. And she said, I realized at that moment that my children had gotten home from school. I hadn't been there. And so I was not available for them to talk to about their day. And she said, and so I never went back to a coffee clutch. Now, understand that that was a decision she made that harmed her husband's professional standing. Okay, these were back in the days when a husband, you could not separate his wife's uh, respect among faculty wives from her husband's achievements, okay? And then I remember her saying to me, you know, Tim, when the kids get home from school, they want to talk. And if the mother isn't there, they won't talk and she'll miss it. That's all she said. But I think it's the same principle. I think we have to realize how important communication is. And we can't just discipline communication to take place right at the half hour after the kids are in bed and before you. You know, in other words, if the children, by virtue of being selfish and demanding, always set the agenda, you're assuming that it's Caitlin, your wife, that's setting the agenda for the time, for the dinner, for the cooking, for everything. But the fact is, in our home, it was not a large inconvenience for you to keep the food on hold. The real inconvenience was that the children were hungry, that the children wanted to talk, that the children wanted our attention. That's my recollection. And if and I'm going to go back and say what I said before. I'm not in favor, Andrew, of you changing all the schedules and not meeting your customers' demands and all that. Yeah. I'm not in favor of that at all. But I'm going to say I have done a huge amount. We have done a huge amount of marriage counseling. And I think in many, many cases, parents who won't say no to their children don't say no because the demands and selfishness and egotism of those children fill the vacuum that there is in the relationship of the husband and wife. I could see how that would be a thing. Yeah, and I would say it's fairly common. One of the places that I've consciously said no, and Caitlin and I say no to each other, is certain times where we say, hey, we're not going to have this conversation right now. And for us, we've gradually developed a pretty firm rule that we don't talk about serious stuff after about 11 p.m. Absolutely. Unless, like, barring an emergency. Mm-hmm. Because it just, it always takes longer. It always goes worse. And then one or both of us are not able to settle down easily afterwards. Whatever we're talking about, if it's a serious thing, you never get a nice, neat package of everything that each person wanted to be 
to be said, got fully heard and addressed, mm-hmm. and everyone's going to bed with their ideas mm-hmm. about it resolved. Somebody comes up short and doesn't feel they've had a chance to say their piece or doesn't feel that they were adequately heard. And the issue, it goes to, we go to bed with the issue more unresolved than it would be if we had not opened it up right then. And so a number of times we've started, the conversation often goes, there probably isn't time to talk about this now, but I just wanted to mention that. And then the other one, five minutes later, says, you realize that we're now talking about it and we need to stop. And it's not a one-way street. It's not that my wife wants to talk about things and I shut her down. It goes both ways. And that recognition that we're not going to talk about it right now and we're not going to preliminarily talk about what we're not going to talk about because that will lead to us talking about it for the next hour. Mm. Actually just saying, we're going to put that on hold until tomorrow. Mm. Let me bring up something else about marriage, which is that those listening, I'm sure, understand that when God says that man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man, and when God says that Adam was created first, then Eve, that it's establishing a hierarchy. There's nothing wrong with the word hierarchy. And that there is a responsibility that the man has for the well-being of the marriage and for the well-being of the home that is uh, larger above the responsibility of the woman. I'm not saying the woman doesn't have that responsibility. but And I think one thing we have to realize is that a husband that never says no to his wife is a husband who is refusing to acknowledge his stewardship of the marriage. And so it's not just that you say, we're not going to have that argument now, but it's also there are times where the husband needs to simply look at his wife and say, okay, sweetie, (laughs) I've heard you. You said this, you said this, you said this. I understand your concern about this and this and this. Now I'm I'm going through all this, not because you have to every time. In other words, she has to know you've heard her and that you actually understand her sympathetically. She's not talking to a block. Yeah, yeah. But then you say, I have made the decision. The answer is no. Or I I am going to do it. And it doesn't mean that the husband's going to say, this is what God wants. You know, a husband that says, this is what honors God, should make sure he doesn't do that very often because it's pretty high-handed. Yeah, It better be because his wife is asking him to rob a bank and he says, no, that won't please God. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, But you have to maintain your ability to make a decision. That's why I was so opposed to Tim Keller telling everybody that the only authority a father has, a husband, is tie-breaking authority. Well, I don't like the concept of tie-breaking between a husband and wife because um, it, it sets you back on your haunches where the only time you'll make a decision is when the two of them have failed to come to an agreement. And so, Did not achieve a consensus. Yeah, and it's, you know, it, it's implied that that's a failure in a sense. And, of course, if we're going to sign a sin when there's a tie between a husband and wife, everybody's going to sign it to the husband. He's pig-headed, he's selfish, he's larger, he's... And so you have to be careful to make sure that you keep your ability in a marriage as a husband to say no. 
And wives, if you think that only applies to the husband, remember that the Bible says that you have authority over your husband's body. And Mary Lee and I often tell couples and women that she has authority to protect her husband physically, sexually. And so there are an awful lot of ways that no is necessary for the husband and wife. But I did want to speak about the authority of the man in the home so that men realize that they can't just cop out when, when there's a tie. Yeah. There are times where we have to say no to our wives. Yeah. There's also a lot of times they have to say no to us. Mm-hmm. I was Give thinking, some examples of that. Well, I think in very few couples do the husband and wife come to their marriage with an equal attitude and experience with money. And that will be a thing throughout their whole lives where one is willing to spend when one isn't and one wants to save when the other doesn't. That's a constant place. And it's not strictly a men do this and women do that. It's not a women are always shopping and men are trying to keep their wives from going out with the credit card. Although certainly there are couples where the wife spends lots of money and the husband is always trying to restrain that. The opposite is also true. I think in, in my marriage, I tend to be the one who's more willing to just spend money on something because I don't see the nuts and bolts of the daily family budget and the grocery bills as closely. I'm just not connected to all those numbers. And so I can be more oblivious to them in a way that can be really upsetting to my wife. It was funny she laughed at me, but last week I was picking up the boys from soccer practice. I was extremely hungry. I had not had dinner yet, and I wanted to stop at Sam's Club and get olives. I really like the Sam's Club olives. And the past couple of times I've been there, they haven't had them. They've been out. And so I had my boys in their soccer gear with their cleats. We go trundling into Sam's Club, and they just <laughs> put out a fresh case of olives. And I came home with like five tubs of olives. And a bunch of boxes of Triscuits. Like when I go when I go shopping and I'm hungry, I buy olives, cheese, Triscuits, and hummus. And I came home with like eighty bucks worth of crackers and cheese and olives and hummus and all this stuff. And I walked in and Caitlin said, "You are going to have to get me a spare refrigerator for the garage. We cannot have you coming home and trying to jam all this stuff in there." And I said, "Oh, don't worry. I'm taking it all to the shop. This is going to be my at work snacks for the next couple of weeks." But it was clearly like. That was not in the grocery budget. Nowhere was five tubs of Greek olives in the grocery budget. And I just, I just went for it. Um, and so there are certainly places where it's really helpful for, for my wife to tell me, no, that's not in our budget. Don't do that. Don't even, don't even spend time thinking about doing that. We should not do that. Just don't ever shop when you're hungry. It's, da- it's dangerous. <laughs> like when I was younger and I shop when I was hungry, I'd always buy steaks. The, <laughs> the cheapest manager special going to be thrown away tomorrow if it doesn't sell tonight. I'd go to Kroger and they always had at the end of the aisle a little manager special section. And I'd always try to buy whatever was the most meat I could get for the money I had in my pocket. And it was always bad steaks. And I cooked them poorly. It, no was, it was not ideal. I've had um, two conversations in the last couple of weeks. They're pretty interesting. Major Uh, decisions about where a couple will live. And one of the couples were having trouble in the home that they lived in, and they literally had to move out. There was an issue. And the 
in-laws said, we will give you our home mortgage-free and we will move somewhere else. And it was the wife's parents that were offering. It was the husband's in-laws. And he said, no. <laughs> no, we are not doing that. And she was tempted, you know, to her. It sounded like a good deal. But he, you know, there was, of course, a lot of things involved in that. But he just absolutely and very quickly said no. The other one was a couple who um, had also... Wait, you have to open that up a little. I don't know who this is. I don't know what you're talking about. But... People are going to think, what's with you? Gets a free home? Well, it was going to involve a cross-state move. You know, he would have to have a new, get a new job, as would she. Um, you know, so there's a lot involved. But okay. of course, it's to get out of a tight and difficult situation that you're in, sort of jump to, you know, something that seemed like it might just solve the problem. So you're in favor of him saying no? Yeah. Because yeah. Why? Well, it also involves the relationship of the in-laws. You know, he's going to live, mm -hmm. probably live the rest of his life indebted to his in-laws, you know, because he took mm -hmm. such a huge favor from them. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot involved. And he didn't, it didn't even sound like, you know, he was into discussing it. He just said, we're not doing <laughs> well, it. Well, yeah, when it comes to something <laughs> like that, a husband's not going to want to discuss it with anyone. Right. And he yeah. feels insecure and he feels like he's an ingrate. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I Let's can... talk about what an idiot I'm being. So the other situation was a couple that also in a fairly new, I mean, an absolutely brand new house. I just don't know how many months they've been in it. Not very long. And the husband just had an issue with it that I don't want to, you know, sort of describe, <laughs> but kind of sensory yeah. issues and it was, he had a hard time explaining it. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating, you know, for him to just say, we just built our dream home and I don't want to live here. And something else came up and he said, we're moving. We're doing that. Yeah. And his wife was like, really? Because I kind of like it here. <laughs> nope. We're moving. So yeah, I mean, those are two examples of major, those big decisions that don't probably come along very often. It's weird that I just happened to have had two conversations in the last two weeks. And yeah. by the way, I now know who they both are. My <laughs> wife made gestures to me. We're, we're playing charades. <laughs> it doesn't really come across in the podcast, but we're always playing, we're playing charades. So when, when Tim was miming, holding Joseph down in the bed, and he's got me on the floor with his hands on my chest saying, night, night, and I'm laying there going, ah. Right. Uh, so yeah, those those kinds of those kinds of big, crucial, life changing decisions where where you're going to live, where you're going to move, what you're going to sell, what you're going to buy, what job you take, what job you don't take, those are the ones that really stand out to people, but they're against they're overlaid on a backdrop of how everything else has gone before that and around that and whether the whether the man, the woman, the family, the marriage even has that gear to get into, and it's not all rusty and broken. The, the job market around here in Bloomington is hard. A lot of families that have stayed here for years, people who have come to IU, gotten married, settled down, become committed members of a church, and are, are putting down roots here, it's a tough town to be in. And I know lots of men my age who 15 years ago were like, 
I want to be here. I can't stay here. I, I can't get any traction for the work that I feel like I'm called to do in my life. I can't do it here. It's just a, there's just a, it's a dry well. And recognizing how much all those yeses and nos are always going to be trade-offs. But the reason at the very beginning I talked about uh, commitments and time and activities and things is Tim and I discussed this a few episodes ago. I have really been feeling in my family in the past year, year and a half, like we're finally starting to run out of room in the sense that when you've got one baby and you don't have a lot of things on your schedule for a bunch of kids, we've gotten, to, we've gotten about to the point where we can't handle adding more things. And anything above this, we're just going to be saying no to. And a lot of ideas and maybe imaginings, I wouldn't go quite as far as dreams that parents have for their, their, that I have for my kids, um, just have to go by the wayside. You get to a point where, okay, our family could conceivably do more of these things, but it would come at an increasing and increasing cost to the health of our family. We would literally never see each other for dinner if we did this right. activity and this activity right. and this activity. I remember several years ago talking to a um, woman who was explaining to me all the different activities that her kids were in and all the different sports that they were in. And I was just like flabbergasted How in the world. I said, when do you ever eat dinner together? And she said, oh, we don't. But we're always together, you know. We're, we go to each other's you know, swim meets and track meets and soccer games, we're all there together. So in her mind, that solved the problem. They were together. And I, you know, I was a little bit intimidated by that at first, you know, it's like, well, okay. they spend more time in proximity than I do. Yeah, that sounds okay. But I just, I didn't feel comfortable with it. Well, I didn't really realize until later um, that it's the family dinner that's missing. And that is where children learn to interact and have conversation and discuss things and learn manners, yeah. you know, and uh, find out something about their parents, you know. So you can all be together at a track meet, but you're not talking, yeah. you know, or the kids are talking with their friends and you're talking with your friends or, or you're, you know, literally just like, you know, watching, you know, the soccer game or, or whatever. Or more likely you're all on your phones. Yeah, that too. So anyway... Um, because I grew up in a family where every single night we had dinner together. I mean, every night. Yeah. That was important to me. I knew its importance, but then since then, you know, now you can read about how important it is. You know, you can get on the internet and uh, read the articles about how important it is. They've done these studies with students that are at Harvard and Yale. And they're, you know, might come from all different kinds of backgrounds, socioeconomic, race, everything. And the one thing, it sounds weird, but this is what they say. The one thing every single one of those kids had in common was eating a family meal together. Totally develops who we are in our character and even in our intellect. They fall in <laughs> love with their brothers and sisters and their mothers and fathers and gain a center that is the family. And I'm very hesitant to say that because of how many people listening to us think, yes, that's why we're agrarian, we've moved out into the country and we have chickens. But that's and not home, what I... And homeschool. And homeschool. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about 
the parents love each other, are interested in each other, and want to have a meal with the children because they actually like looking at their children and they like to hear about their children. In other words, it's not the manners, it's not the food, it's not, this is something I feel so strongly, is the absence of Christian parents understanding how jealous they should be for the focus and the centrality of them in the lives of their children. Everybody thinks they do it. Everybody thinks they have it. But when I look at the eyes of a father looking at his children, it is exceedingly rare that that father has the love and just the trust of his children growing up. I don't think most people do think they have it. I think most people think they don't have it and that they don't know how to get it. And that it's, you know, it's like kids hit adolescence or even before, and they just think, oh, well, yep, that's a sad, but this is what happens. But you have to fight for it. Yeah. You have to work for it. It doesn't just come. Right. I think about when Hannah was little and how she would get on the computer and do chat. And I remember just feeling violated that she was having this hypothetical relationship with somebody by typing over a computer. Do you remember this? You don't remember it, do no, you? No, he's just laughing at the term little. We said when she was little. Well, she would have been 10, 12. Junior high, yeah. Yeah. And I remember just saying to her, no, Hannah, no, you're not going to do any chat. None. And it was an arbitrary decision, but I felt that chat was a threat to the unity and, and gravitas of our home that other people could just bop on in and have her undivided attention. I'm really bad about this. I'm really bad about this. So two things I've been thinking about as you've been talking. Um, when I have family meals with my family, which is not every night, but we do try to make a priority of having some dinners together every week, I find myself saying lots and lots of petty no's during that meal. And for me, it's it's not because... I want to have the, you know, Von Trapp family where the dad blows a whistle and all the kids line up, <laughs> but I can't conceive of how many more times I'm going to have to tell one of my sons to not have his plate 12 inches back from the edge of the table and then yeah, spill food yeah. all over the table on yeah, the way to his yeah, mouth. Yeah. And so certainly there are just a lot of, there's no's. a lot of no's and a lot of instruction and mm -hmm. it can, it can start to feel like. Hey, dinner's a lot more chill if dad's not here. Mm -hmm. When dad's not we here, we just that's get true. to eat. <laughs> that's not dinners in general. That's just dinners at my house. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is I'm a young adult. I'm not a young adult, but I don't feel like, I still don't feel like an adult in a lot of ways. And I live in a very connected world. Mm -hmm. I have customers and friends and people in my industry the number of times that I get email, text, and a phone call in an evening, it's basically every evening. There's multiple things coming my way that I could stop what I'm doing, grab my phone, and sit down and start dealing with that. I have the same feeling you do about chat. My middle school-aged daughter wants to spend time Google chatting with her friends, and I'm pretty ambivalent about it. I'm not I'm not a Luddite who says, well, this is just terrible. We're not going to use this. This technology is not useful. You shouldn't learn how to use it. But certainly, I don't want it to be the case where our whole family is sitting around doing something and she's off on the computer. But I am the worst offender in that regard. I say no to myself least 
in that. I have no, I have no objection to that. I would regularly say to our children, do as I say, not as I do. I have no objection to saying to our children, I am going to take the privilege of doing what I tell you not to do. Remember, they're children. Yeah. And the fact is, if your business depends on that, you can't get your customers to understand what your principles are about the evening. They probably don't even have children. I'm not saying that I would always agree with you, but the fact is, look, in our home, we were defensive of our dinner. We were defensive of the attention of our children. We were defensive about our children going into the basement where there was a nice bathroom and bedroom. We didn't want them going into the basement in high school. And the reason was we wanted them near us and we didn't want their doors closed. We didn't allow our children to close the doors except to change because we wanted the doors open. We wanted all of us to be a family and we did not want technology, phones. One thing we did is for years, it used to be the habit that everybody would allow their phone to ring and then they'd have an answering machine connected to the phone. Yep. And it took us fighting about this for probably a couple of years. But you remember, we never, ever answered the phone. Right. But that's why I'm, I'm going to disagree with Andrew. I don't think he does have the right to, I mean, on occasion, <laughs> yes, but not on a regular basis, you know, taking phone calls and texting in the middle of a meal when you've just told your so kids certainly not to. certainly not at the table. Yeah. You know, we're talking about chat and everything, but really, you know, the majority of teens, junior high, you know, preteens have, have phones. Yes. Right. And the parents do not know how to handle it. And kids are just sitting at the dinner table you know, looking down and it'll happen texting. I think that is the And most looking at pornography. Well, probably and not so, at the dinner table, but yeah. No. And so we need to start with saying no to smartphones. Yes. So yes. explain what other options there are that Heather and Doug have used. Well, I'm not really the best one to talk about it, but the Gab phone yep. is, um, I think, the, the best one um, that, you know, they've done some research on. So they can text with friends. They cannot send photos um, you, you're nodding your head like you know. So maybe my daughter one. has a Gab watch. Okay. So we went for the one that that's wearable rather than the handheld phone version, okay. and that results in it being very, very difficult to text on. But she can call us, and she can also send us voice memos. Okay. So oftentimes, if my daughter sends me a message, it's a little six second recording where she just holds up to her mouth, records it, and sends it, and that works great. It gives her a way to get a hold of us. But when you've got it on one hand, sitting there and typing on a watch sized screen is so infuriatingly inefficient <laughs> that people don't really text on them. Yeah. She sends me emojis, though. I send, I send her something, and she like sends me back a thumbs up, because that's mm -hmm. just yeah. send that. Be jealous for the attention of your children. Win the hearts of your children. As a father and a mother, you have to win. My son, give, give me your heart. You have to work hard for this stuff. And so as a father and a mother, you have to win the hearts of your children. You're not going to win their hearts if you allow them to do what they want or if you do what you want. But I wanted to say this also. At the end of the meal, we'd fall out of our chairs onto the floor, put our heads on each other's stomachs, tell some stories, and then eventually read the Bible and pray. And if my children didn't touch me with their bodies, I'd say, get your foot over next to my leg. I wanted them touching me. 
How many times a day will we tell our children that we love them and like them? And well, that's what I'm thinking too. It, it, again, it starts when they're little. You know, oh, yeah. you don't have a teenager that you're suddenly you in know, love with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, wow, this is this is this is the fully formed resistance. <laughs> you know. Oh no, it's a piece of resistance for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, actually, one of the one of the things that I say regularly to my kids is, "I'm happy to see you." And then give them a hug, and it it's true. I don't I don't just throw it off as a thing that doesn't have any meaning. I'm happy yeah. to see my yep, kids, yep, yep, yep. and they know that I am. Yeah, I can see. Even it. if I can tell that they're not necessarily happy to see me sometimes, which is fine. You know, we we keep we're the adults, we're the yeah. parents, we're the ones who need to you know keep taking the initiative in that. Because my leave for work time generally lines up roughly with when my kids are getting ready for school. I actually see them together at the table more consistently at breakfast time, Mm. although I'm usually taking my food in the car. Uh, I don't normally sit down and eat breakfast with the family. That's a time when we have a few minutes to talk. And as the owner of a business, at the end of the day, if something's not done and needs to get finished, the buck stops with me. I send the employees home. I rarely ask people to stay after unless there's an emergency. But that often means that a couple nights a week, I'm getting home at or after the kid's bedtime. Hmm. Which, Which is an improvement from when you were first married. Yeah. Yeah, it was. <laughs> we go back a long time. I, I, I used to be the janitor at Trinity Reformed Church, and I would consistently stay hours longer than I should. And part of it was just... It was, it's hard to be a dad and a husband. Yeah, it's nicer to be in a big empty building. We and it's nice to be a custodian. A yeah. <laughs> because when you get done cleaning the chrome, it's, it's clean. clean. <laughs> <laughs> the mirrors are clean. clean. The, the glass doors are clean. clean and the trash is empty. <laughs> Until the next day. Until the next day. Yeah. What were you going to say earlier? Oh, that was a long time ago. I know, but I interrupted you. I know, but I can't remember. You well, said we have teenage kids grandkids you were gonna oh yeah so this was just going back to the smartphone thing it's hard to um argue or stand firm when your kids are saying everybody else Mm -hmm, has one mm -hmm. and it's true yeah everybody in the christian schools you know has these smartphones so it's hard to fight with that but again it's it's important to stand firm and so what i was saying was we have you know, 16-year-old drivers, and that's where, you know, people are going, well, they have to be able to get a hold of us, you know, I want to know where they are. You know, that's kind of the breaking point. If you stood firm until they're 16, it was like, well, now that they're going to start driving, really, they have to be able to have a smartphone, but they still don't have to. And so, yes, we have have had and have several grandchildren who are 16 and older who do not have smartphones. Yeah. And they do have gab phones. They can get a hold of their parents. When I think about the Christian virtue of saying no, there are so many ways that as we raised our family, we said no. And, you know, I'm just thinking about how Andy Halsey was teaching. Who would it have been? Would it have been uh, Hannah? Michael. It was Michael. And I was going somewhere. I remember my sister telling me, when I was younger, I don't remember what we were talking about, but she said to me, you know what? 
just take your children with you and do what you like to do. And that was such a freeing thing to me. Well, what it required was for me to say no to their teachers, to their youth leaders, to other people. Because oftentimes, when I wanted to take my children with me, whether it was out to Breckenridge because I had a preaching engagement out in Colorado or whether it was someplace else, General Assembly, Presbytery meetings, and the teachers who were in our church, Andy Halsey specifically, and he was so offended that I would take my children out of his class. And Andy is the ace of spades between you and me in terms of the people that we're most thankful for when our children were young. He loved our children. And yet when it came to me taking Michael with me on a trip because I wanted her with me, I think it might have been the Banner of Truth Conference. I think it was East. But anyhow, he was like, well, that's irresponsible. You know, she she has obligations in school and did it, did it, did it. And I remember saying to him, Andy, I'm a pastor. Every weekend is tied up. If I want my daughter with me. It's on a school day. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was school. Yeah. She will go with me. And uh, you don't think of that as being a no, but an awful lot of being a parent is being jealous for the centrality of your home and family over against other people in their lives. Would you tell them about our flute teacher? Well, I was going to talk about something else. Um, Our kids grew up making applesauce with Mm -hmm. me. And now they are married with their own children, and they have applesauce-making day, you know? Yep. And so this conversation was just over this weekend. I was talking um, to one of your daughters-in-law yesterday, and she said she'd done, I think, 75 bags of applesauce. And how'd that go? She said, I'm glad to be done. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, anyway, so we were talking about, you know, I was, we were talking about this with group people over the weekend. And the one woman said, well, you know, my kids are at school, and so I can't, you know, I just can't really sort of have that. Mm-hmm. Together time. Yeah, tradition. And I said, mm-hmm. oh, I've known kids to skip school, stay home for applesauce making day. Mm-hmm. But again, she was just absolutely aghast. She just could not even fathom that that could be a thing. It's like, well, it's a family tradition. Yep. <laughs> skip a day of math and English. What's on the calendar for today? Everyone's <laughs> playing hooky is right. on the calendar for today. <laughs> yeah, right. mothers, if you're a homeschooler, If you take your kids to a Christian school, it's actually good for them to miss classes and to fail tests because they miss them. And the reason it's good is that you should, to quote a very famous pagan, don't ever allow schooling to get in the way of your children's education. Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. Yep. And my dad quoted that all the time. The fact is, your children are going to be educated by you. I mean, your children are going to resemble you when they grow up because they're going to imbibe everything you are, all your interests. Your children are going to be incurably curious. Yeah. Yes, they will. They already are. Don't be, don't, don't feel guilty. Don't allow any other parents or any teachers to guilt trip you. I remember I was going out to Colorado and Joseph was going to come with me and he would have been in probably fifth grade, fourth and uh, so I went into the teachers, a public school at the time, right across the street from the church I was serving at the time. And I went into the principal's office and I said, hi, I'm Tim Bailey. I'm the pastor of the church across the street from you. And Joseph is my son and he's in such and such a grade. And I want you to know that as a pastor, I'm not able to get away on weekends. If I have an opportunity to take my son with me, 
I, I want to do that. And so I'm going out to Colorado, a preaching engagement there. I'm going to take my son with me. He's going to miss a week of school. And I wanted to tell you that this is a priority with me. And she looked at me and she said to me, well, that's fine, but he will get an F for everything that happens while he's gone. And I looked at her and I said, that's Great. fine. We're on the same page. That's fine. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. And then I walked out of the office and this man came sidling up next to me and he said, he said, I am Joseph's teacher. You take him. It won't influence his grade one bit. <laughs> Do you remember me telling you that that happened? Yep. We did have a music teacher that was beyond intense. And I just remember, you know, one particular incident where we were going to uh, had tickets to the Nutcracker. And so I had told her that, you know, Michael was going to miss a rehearsal for something that night because we were going to the Nutcracker. And she said, no, no, she cannot miss. It's like, well, we have tickets to the Nutcracker. She may not miss. I mean, we just went around and around. <laughs> she was in our church, too. Anyway. No, Michael did not go to the Nutcracker with us that night. She she went to her flute thing. Anyway, this lady, you know, had Michael's life planned out. She had, you know, she knew where she, you know, she was going to go to college and, you know, everything else. And I enjoyed listening to her. Yeah, she was very good. But um, anyway, she did not pursue flute. Michael just said, no, I'm done. And we asked her why. And she said, well, because I'm not going to be a player. And she said, and it's taking up my life. And if I'm not aiming to get into a symphony somewhere and to have, you know, the position, she said, now's the time to stop. And I remember talking to her and saying, but I love to hear you practicing. I love to hear you playing. Well, yes, but it takes up too much time. And it was not that she was lazy. Some people would think that Michael was lazy. It was that Michael learned the Christian virtue of saying no. I had a similar experience with a very intense music teacher. And then I, I did go on to college. And even when I was in grad school, I was looking at, I made the decision to stop in grad school, which is a very late and expensive point to make that decision. <laughs> that's, that's what I recognize is that I was the second oldest of eight. And many of my younger siblings did study music, but my parents never again were willing to get into the rodeo of demands on our schedule that my music training had cost us growing up. I had multiple rehearsals a week. We had stuff on Sunday afternoons. We had to travel to do concerts. I got, I had to play in competitions. I was in chamber music groups and it was all this stuff. Hmm. And it was just, none of it was optional. They expected you to organize your entire life around it. We made it through that. And Certainly, I would not have been able to come to a school like the IU School of Music if I hadn't had prep that was that rigorous and demanding. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been able to come here. And so I cannot say my life would have been anything like it currently is. I would not have met Caitlin. My entire life would be completely different. But at a certain point, I realized, you know what? If I win an audition and I get myself an orchestra job, I'm going to have to move absolutely anywhere in the world I can manage to land that job. Mm -hmm. And... I'm going to be there until I can manage to land a better one. And then I'm going to have to move wherever in the world I landed that better one. And I remember a friend of mine, she won a job 
with the Winnipeg Symphony. And she was so annoyed. <laughs> and she's like, I hate the cold. I hate the cold. I'm moving to Winnipeg. You're going to take the job? She's like, yes, I have to take the job. I got the job. I won the audition. I'm taking the job. I have to move to Winnipeg. I won't be able to wait to get out of Winnipeg. And that idea that you're, you're basically just saying, I'm going to go wherever I have to go. I think Michael was surprisingly clear in her thinking to look ahead at that and go, that's what I'm going to end up doing. I don't want that. Let's take the off ramp. But she had the benefit of being in church with a ton of musicians. Yeah. And so probably it was clearer to her than it would have been to you. Uh, yeah, maybe I, I think I, I think I wanted it more for other reasons, competitive reasons. But it was clear for my parents, like, okay, that was a really, really costly investment for our entire family. And other things that other kids wanted to do got said no to because our family had to make sure that Andrew could get to this thing or that thing. And so after that, they dialed the intensity way down in terms of what they were willing to sign on to. And so almost all my siblings are good musicians, but none of them ever tried to get tracked that way again. And the funny thing is, my siblings who played less intensely than I did play their main instruments more often than, than mm-hmm. I do these days. Like my, my sisters who play piano very well play more often. I don't play my viola very often at all mm-hmm. anymore. I end up slumming around on guitar all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about someone else that we knew. Um, By the way, if you want to understand why they play their instrument more, read the book Range. Yeah. Have you read that? It's on my shelf. Okay. Got to read it. I've always been reading it out loud to me as we travel. Yeah. Anyway, I was thinking about someone else. And of course, you know, many people will fit into this, but this young woman was trained um, to be a harp player. So the same, you know, sort of track you were in, just so much The difference is I can get on and off a bus and in and out of an (laughs) elevator easily. She needs a minivan just to (laughs) move. (laughs) Man, one of my kids was like, I'd like to play the cello. I'm like, we're not doing that. I'd seen too many of my friends have to buy a plane ticket for their cello every time. No, every time they flew home for Christmas, they bought two plane tickets. Wow. Crazy. Well, anyway. So yes, the amount of money and energy and you know scheduling that went into her being brought up to be a harpist, and then one day she decided she was going to marry a young man who was going to the ministry, going to seminary, and let's and just all hell broke. Yeah, I was going to say let's just say her parents were not happy. Yeah, but yeah, I mean she knew that to do one thing she was going to have to say no to the other. I don't want to open up this can of worms, but I think it's an interesting idea that I know for myself that I have a very intense focus on finishing things that I start and not quitting. Hmm. And in some ways, think of that as like a Christian virtue. We honor our word. We stick with it. We do what we say. We do what we say we'll do. And that often is completely the wrong approach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Another book on my shelf that I've started and haven't finished is all about quitting. The whole book is about quitting, the value and utility of quitting, mm-hmm. learning to quit early and often on all kinds of things because- Not throw good money after Yeah, bad. just not throw good years yeah. away yeah. on things. And so teaching our kids to say no, I don't want to teach my kids to be quitters, but I certainly do want to teach my kids how to quit things mm-hmm. that need to be quit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think um, I'm thinking of another family that, you know, has several kids, and then every single one of them was in a sport. And just every single day and night, you know, one of the, you know, the husband or the wife is driving this one here or that one there, and their marriage suffered. Yeah. So, yes, we do have to say no. You know, it's just, it's so tempting because there really are some good things. You know, it's good things in music. There's, um, there's great things. There's yeah. great things all over the place. Yeah. God's world is full of great things, yes. most of which we need to say no to yeah. most of the time. Yeah. Taylor was good at soccer, and so he was on a travel team. But I said to him, Taylor, you will never play on Sunday. And so you will never be a star. Because stars have to play on Sunday, and you won't do it. Well, because he showed, he didn't show up for about a third of the, to half the games, they never put him on the top team, even though his skill set was good. And it was because they resented the fact that he would not play on Sunday. And that was year after year a no that we said from faith. And parents, you need to realize, if you're going to train your children to be aspirational, if you're going to be aspirational through your children, whether it's through academics, music, sports, an awful lot of these positions are going to require things of your children that if I were to say to them to you as your pastor, and you know, I were to take you aside and say, hey, brother, have you thought about this? It would be awkward, and you might be really angry with me because you might have been avoiding thinking that. We had a woman that came to our church who was a starter for the IU women's basketball team. And I remember talking to her about lesbianism and telling her when she's out on the road with the other woman, she needs to be very careful that she doesn't give in to the other women trying to seduce her. Because, you know, you can be lonely out on the road with a team And these are the people you practice with, you're intimate with them, emotionally intimate. These are the circumstances in which our children fall into sin. And so I said, you know, but I I kept thinking, what, what father would have his goal to be for his daughter to play professional basketball? I mean, honestly, are we idiots? And this was a godly family, you know, they were, were they homeschooling, do you remember? Yeah, homeschooling, you know, absolutely, oh, you know, they, oh, oh, they were paragons of everything that Christians should be with their children growing up, you know, and and she's spending her life with a bunch of lesbians. Now, I'm not saying that because I don't like lesbians. Some of my best friends are lesbians. (laughs) Now, that's a bit of a joke, but, you know, we have people that have been in homosexuality, both men and women in our church. But my point is, if you're going to put your children in harm's way, if you're going to have them playing football, NFL, on Sunday, if you're going to have them playing, you know, I was talking yesterday to the guy that spent time in in the minor leagues, you know. It was before he was a Christian, but nevertheless, what kind of a life is this? Mm -hmm. If you're going to send your children off to get a PhD. (laughs) Okay, here's another good one. If you're going to put your children in drama, Guess oh, what? My goodness. You are putting them in harm's way. They yeah. will be surrounded by homosexuality. So, and out. just by, I remember we had a woman that got an internship um, out at the San Francisco Opera, 
and the after performance parties with the patrons who were very wealthy in San Francisco were utterly debauched. And she had to go because she was a soprano. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, people, we need to wake up and realize that, that what we really want in our heart of hearts, because we're Christians, is that our children will love Jesus Christ, that they will hate their sin, that they will marry a man or woman of God who will help them to be sanctified, that they will have children who will honor God and provide them a godly seed, and that they will die well. We don't take those things for granted. And if our focus is on these basic things that God has called us to do as his people, it's going to require us to say no to a whole host of things that are not bad in of themselves, you know, soccer, baseball, ice hockey, you know, curling even up in Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, these things aren't, well, maybe curling is bad in and of itself. You know. We have to maintain the first thing as first. My relationship and my wife's relationship with our sons and daughters is of the essence. Another thing is our children had to go to small group, had to go to the gathering of the youth of the church. They had to go to worship. There was just no question about any of these things. They had no choice. And this was at a time when our church had nothing to offer them. And they had just left the church that had a lot to offer them. And we demanded that our children love the church as we love the church and that they gave themselves. And you remember, you know, one of the kids that were their peers. And, you know, she gets into high school and she just does everything. She, you remember what I'm yeah, talking yeah. about? I don't know. Yeah, she was so, she was having so much fun at school, you know, doing all the sports and all the dramas that she, you know, started just not attending youth group. Um, that just became less of a priority. And I guess what Tim is saying is we didn't let our kids make that decision. Yeah. Were, youth group was not anything that was ever discussed. You know, you didn't come home and say, oh, I've got so much, you know, homework, homework tonight. Can't go to youth group. I, yeah, it's like, no. And it, so many parents live aspirationally through their children. Well, we want her to be in the, in the plays at high school. We want her to be able to be a pom-pom girl, a cheerleader on the football team and stuff. And life is made up of those decisions that you make for your child and help them accomplish, which end up excluding intimacy with other Christian and a sense of obligation, responsibility for other Christian children, you know, which we taught our children that they are their brother's keeper, their sister's keeper. You know, we were talking about Taylor and soccer, and um, I don't even know if you remember this. He was on that travel Cutter's soccer team, and when his very disturbed cousin came to live with us, we pulled him off of that team and put him on the lower level playing, so that they so that they would be on the same team. Because I, you know, we refused to drive back and forth, you know, to two things, and it seemed like it would be a good thing for her to be on a team playing soccer. And we just with pulled, Taylor, yeah, we pulled him down uh, onto the other team so that they could play together. Yeah. So yeah. As you were talking to him, I was thinking, uh, what does it profit a man 
to gain the whole world. And was his son and, and lose daughter. His soul. <laughs> well, was his son and daughter. Yeah. yeah. But gaining the whole world through his aspirations for mm-hmm. his children, mm-hmm. you, you avoid getting there by lots and lots and lots of no's. Let me talk a little bit about academics. Um, and this will be controversial, but probably lots of what we're saying is. My brother was a National Merit Scholar, went to Swarthmore. All of Mary Lee's siblings and my siblings were exceedingly accomplished academically. Our fathers were editors, authors, you know. And so it's in our DNA to achieve academically. And Mary Lee and I have lived almost our whole lives, either in Boulder or Madison or Bloomington with major universities, grew up in Wheaton. And so when our children came to the point of going to college, I wanted my children to prove how smart I was. I hate putting it so crassly, but I don't want anybody to miss the point. And so when we had a daughter, our middle daughter won the national merit and got a full ride into IU. Then a man asked to marry her. And it was very difficult for me. I don't know. You probably didn't care, you know. I'm sure she didn't care. Did you care or (laughs) didn't you? How did you feel about that? I mean, her it's, finishing, it's an awkward. Yeah. Her finishing at IU was not important to yeah, me. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it was very important to me. And it was important because I wanted everybody to know how smart I was. Now, I don't know. Is there a better way of saying that? You want me to shut up? <laughs> I think, I think the on. first way was actually better. It's like you... <laughs> You want people to look at you and respect you more and think of you because of how they see your children. I didn't want her to get married until she finished college, right? Yeah. And I mean, it wasn't a total loss. I won a paying gig at their wedding. I, <laughs> I, met, a, I met a bluegrass band at the reception that turned into a paying gig for the next two years for me. Right on. I never knew right that. on. <laughs> so one day, one day she comes to me and she says, Daddy, I'm just doing what you've taught us to do. Well, when she, and that's all she said. Well, when she said that, I knew what she was saying to me is, Daddy, you've taught me to be a woman. You've taught me to love children. You've taught me to make it a priority to be pure. These are what things you've taught me. And she didn't say this, but what she was saying was, You're asking that's me to give them why, up now. Yeah, that's why I want to be able to get married. And it hit me like a sledgehammer because I realized that I was willing to jeopardize the well-being of my daughter and her future husband. And I had seen Christian parents jeopardizing and basically telling their children, you go ahead and have sex with your boyfriend, but don't you get married until you have your degree. And, of course, I would never say that to my child. But I realized that what I wanted was what would make me look good. And I remember calling a friend of mine, and I remember saying to him, let's say his name is Tom. You know, Tom, it's just hit me today that when it comes to education and degrees, reformed men are idolatrous. We are willing to do anything 
to, to, to scrabble our way up the ladder of esteem and pride when it comes to our children's achievements. And I don't say academically, because actually, we don't really care that much about whether they're achieving things academically. We just want them to achieve them in terms of prestigious universities, prestigious degrees, internships, stuff like that. And so I want to warn those of you who are listening, do not betray God with your child by thinking that the curriculum choices you make and the school choices and getting them into a college, that is to bastardize the gift of children that God has given you. It is wrong. Now, you might say, well, I don't want my children to be ignorant. And go back to what I said earlier. Your children are going to be who you are. The education that they get is largely immaterial to whether or not they will be readers and writers and thinkers when they're 45 and have six, seven children of their own. It's just the truth. And I look back at Michael. She did get married before she graduated. She didn't ever graduate from college. And I... You know, I would love anybody that thinks they've given their child an education and they went to Princeton or they did an internship at D.C. with a senator or whatever it is. I put them in a room with Michael, give them any subject to discuss, and I know I would be more interested in what Michael had to say about it than the other woman. And so don't ever think that you are actually protecting your ability of your child to have a worldview that's Christian or, you know, to not give in to evolution or all this other stuff. No, mostly what you're doing is living aspirationally through your child, and that you need to say no to. There are only so many years in a man's life and a woman's life, And you better be a good steward of the years that you have authority over your children. And you better make sure that God has first place and that you're not just a Canaanite idolater that just does what the Canaanites do. Now, I don't know if now's the right time, but there's one thing I want to get to before we're done. Okay. Probably if you were to ask me right off the cuff, the Christian virtue of saying no. The first thing I would talk about is the necessity of saying no to your own desires, and specifically in terms of your career. And I want to really emphasize this. A little earlier, we were talking about what church and where jobs are available and stuff. Yep. And I'm not in favor of staying in one job your whole life. That's not my point. But when I look back on my life, I think the most important decisions that Mary Lee and I have made is saying no to opportunities that came. Yep. And I could go through a string of them. You know, churches where I I would have given my right arm to be the senior pastor of those churches. Other positions were to be on the board of things requests that I leave pastoral ministry and run an organization. These things come in the ministry. I just kept saying no. And I, if I were to list the things that I said no to, people would say, well, why did you say no to that? You could have been a pastor and you could have done that. And, you know, I don't really know, except that I just said no, 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 no. And it began the first year I was in ministry when my executive presbyter offered a church that was over halfway to Wheaton. So we were going back to Wheaton a lot. 
And it had a brand new building. It had a congregation of over 200. And it was fairly evangelical. And the pay would have been much better. And I thought, seriously? I haven't even been here a year. And my executive presbyter is trying to get me to go to a larger church and get more pay. By God's grace, my father had said to me when I went in the ministry, he said, Tim, don't use Partyville as a stepping stone. And so even if I'd wanted to, I couldn't have faced my father. But these things kept happening. Now, why did I say no? I don't know. Probably for sinful reasons. You know, probably I was scared. Probably I thought I'd make a fool of myself. Probably, I don't know why I said no, but consistently I said no, 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 no. Now I'm old enough to look back on it. And the reason I'm grateful is I don't think I could have handled the positions. I think they would have corrupted me. Okay? Yep. And I want to say that to anybody that thinks if they could just have this position or they they could just get this job offer, if they could just get more money or more power or more success or more acknowledgement, there are very few men who can handle fame, money, power. Very few. If you don't know what I'm talking about, read scripture. Start with Solomon. And it is God's kindness to us if we are kept small. It's God's kindness to us if we don't become rich. If you were successful, you would probably be just as proud as all the Gospel Coalition guys are. And do you really want that? <laughs> you know, we all think, well, if I could just have the reputation, think of my influence. Well, that reputation comes at a cost, and it costs, and it costs, and, and it costs. And it does. And if you go through Scripture, and you go through history, and you look at the men who have gotten positioned. You know, I've been reading a lot of private correspondence between uh, famous Christians in the first half of the 20th century. J. Oliver Buswell, Francis Schaeffer, Bart, Carl, Carl McIntyre, Harry Ironside. Um, there are others. And man, to read their private correspondence, these guys never stopped fighting. And so you ask yourself, why do they never stop fighting? Each other or just in Oh, general? yeah, 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 each other. Yeah, I have a letter that Bart wrote, Buswell and Machen. And I mean, how funny is it? I read it out loud to Mary Lee. He is really just taking them to the mat because they had both written articles against his theology. And so he just... Came out swinging. He did. I mean, that doesn't even begin to touch it. He swang and he swang and he swang. I mean, it's a hilarious letter. And he's not good at English. Right. And so that's part of the humor. And these are men that I respect. I respect Buswell. I respect the Dickens out of Machen. Yep. And I have some respect for Schaefer. I read a biography of Harry Ironside. I wanted to make sure I said this before we ended. You have no obligation to accept a promotion. None. You have no obligation to move if your company asks you to move. You think very carefully how 
When you look back at the end of your lifetime, what will be the impact of the church that you raise your children in? And in the end, Mary Lee and I stayed in Bloomington. And by the time I resigned the pulpit, we had had an unbroken period of 30 years where the people of our church had made up for all our stupidities and mistakes as a father and a mother, had loved our children, had hired them, but there was discipline. There was discipline from youth group leaders. There was criticism. But that's what I mean when, when I say that the church cared for our children in ways that Mary Lee and I were not able to do it. So be very careful not to become a living example of the Peter Principle. Yeah. The Peter Principle is everybody rises to the level of their incompetence, which is you get promoted and promoted and promoted until you finally reach a point at which you are completely useless, and then you stay there forever. And it may not be that you're incompetent and you can't run a large church. It may be that you actually cannot run a large church or be a pastor without it going to your head. Yeah. In a lot of cases, it's just people that are good at a thing aren't necessarily good at managing people who do that thing and aren't good at running an organization that manages people that do that thing. Yes, that's true. But be very suspicious of your ability to handle fame or money or power without causing it to make you arrogant. Wittenberg Door, I worked for you specialties out in San Diego for a while, and it was sort of a Christian... I don't want to say satirical magazine. It wasn't Mad Magazine, but it, these guys mixed it up. Yeah. And they'd always do an interview with somebody that was known, but they'd really punch in the interview. And so they interviewed Bill Hybels, and this must have been in the late 90s. That's what I'm guessing. And I came across it in my files. And at the end of the interview, they keep pushing Bill Hybels to admit all of the weaknesses of Willow Creek and all of the failures of megachurches. And he basically gives them a lot of rope to hang them on. Yeah. You know, he, but then he always comes back and says, but that's why we do this. You know, he always was trying to say other megachurches are bad, but we do it right. We do it right. We do it right. But it's very interesting. At the very end of the interview, all of a sudden, Bill says, you know, I am aware of the destruction of the man at the top in a mega church. And I don't want to talk about that now. That's what he said. Basically, yeah. And it was like you could watch the Wittenberg door guy like going, what? He basically said that in the interview. What? And Heibel said again, no, I'm not going to talk about that, but I know the damage it does. Yep. And that was the end of the interview. Yeah, and that was when he was at his height, and then we all watched the damage after that. And I'm convinced that at that time, in that interview, he would have given anything to leave Willow Creek. But he was carrying a kingdom. Everybody's aspirations ran through Bill Hybels in Europe, everywhere in the world. When you get into that position, what are you going to do? You know, trash the crown? So I actually felt very sorry for him reading the end of the interview. He can't get down. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. 
But seems like a pretty good place to wrap. Thank you for coming on, Mary Lee. It's good to talk to you, Tim. Thank you. Let's go.